This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. My name is Troy Swanson. I'm the event organizer for the One Book, One College program. I'm one of the librarians. Um, today we're going to talk about American identity with sociologist Ricky Cobb and what, is, what does it mean to be American and um, to identify that way. Before we get in uh, to the conversation, let me introduce Ricky. I, I've been excited about this event. Uh, Ricky is one of our faculty members, and I always like to get him uh, in the library to um, share his brain power. So Ricky holds the bachelor's in government from Western Kentucky University and a master's in sociology from the uh, University of Louisville. And if you're from the South, I think it's Louisville, um, but we're not. So yeah, he grew, was born and raised in Kentucky, so he's our token southerner on the faculty. So that's... Another reason why I wanted him to come to talk about this book. Um, he teaches Intro to Sociology, uh, Sociology of Sex and Gender, Marriage and Family, and Contemporary Social Problems here. So if you like Ricky, you know, keep an eye out on the schedule uh, down the road. To get started, I thought I'd read a couple paragraphs. I see, I see people way in the back hiding back there. I see you back there, Kara. Uh, I thought I'd read a couple paragraphs from the book. This year's book is um, Confederates in the Attic by Tony Horowitz. And this book is essentially a travel log of the South. And um, around page 149, um, he interviews the Southern writer Shelby Foote, who is well known as a voice um, of the South and thinks a lot about the Civil War and is interviewed often about the Civil War. So I wanted to read a couple paragraphs out of that, out of that chapter where he's talking to Shelby Foote. So if you bear with me for a couple seconds, this will help us set up our conversation about identity. So uh, Horowitz is talking about Shelby Foote. He says, his great-grandfather had opposed secession, but fought without hesitation for the South. This is during the Civil War. Just as I would have, Foote said, I'd be with my people, right or wrong. I was against slavery, um, but I'd still be with the South. I'm a man. My society needs me. Here I am. The difference between North and South in the war is that there was no stigma attached to the Northern man who paid $200 to go to war, or who hired a German replacement. Uh, oh, paid $200 to not go to war, who hired a German replacement. In the South, you never would have done that. No one would. You would have been scorned. Foote's retroactive allegiance to the Confederacy surprised me. It was the honor-bound code of the Old South, one's people before one's principles, the straitjacket of scorn and stigma. It's a bunch of shit, really, Foote conceded, but all Southerners described... Uh, subscribe to this code to some degree, at least male Southerners of my generation. In Foote's view, the same stubborn pride has sustained Southerners during the Civil War. It's what kept them going through Appomattox, that attitude of, of I won't give up, I will not be insulted. Nonetheless, um, Southern identity, Foote's included, remained fierce. So, I mean, I think this hits on that identity that we still think North is different from South, the Southern pride, I'm with my people, I'm with my region, um, even as I look back on this very complicated war that changed U.S. history. So to get into this identity thing, I wanted to get Ricky going here, and I, I think we need to talk about what is identity and, and how do sociologists think about identity. When we say identity, from a sociological standpoint, what is that all about? Well, um, when, we had, when we had initially discussed this 
uh, book and what we were going to do today with this uh, uh, little program that uh, that we put together here in the library. And thank you for inviting me, as always. I enjoy uh, enjoy these functions. Um, I told you at that time that really in Social 101, Intro Sociology, I talk about it more in terms of the self. Um, and I tell my students that the self is the picture that we gain through our experiences in life of how other people see us. So self-concept, in, 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 really in, in that parlance, is really the identity that we derive from our life experiences. And I think particularly in the context of American identity, we're talking about um, what does being American mean to our construction of self? It has to mean something, right? And so what does that mean? What does it mean to my identity? I'm an American. What does that say about me? I have to believe that there's some meaning attached to that, right? And that comes through our culture. So what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be a Southerner? What does it mean to be a Northerner? What, does the herit what is the legacy of the Confederacy for the Southern person? These are all things that, um, whether it's going on on a conscious level or not, these are things that are, that are being considered uh, by individuals. Can we just step back for a second to that definition of self? You said how other people see us. Yes. So it's not just like I make this up about myself. Absolutely not. I mean, you're, the self really could, could not occur in a vacuum because if I were the only person in the world, how would I see myself? Uh, George Herbert Mead, a sociologist, he talks about the difference between the I and the me. That the I, he describes as the self as actor. It's the part of you that does things. It's the part of you that's spontaneous. It's the part of you that gives somebody a high five when something good happens. And I know you do that sort of thing. It's the kind of thing that uh, if you get mad and you have a little temper outburst, that's the self. It's the part of you that is acting and not, and not acting so much with any consideration or concern with how it's going to be absorbed by other people. He says also there's a part of the self he calls the me. And the me is the self as object. It's the part of you that has internalized the norms of society. It's the part of you that understands um, or believes that you understand the difference between right and wrong and these ethical value judgments that we make. And it's the part of you that understands perhaps that other people are going to draw influences about who you are based on your behavior and based on your actions. So if, if I get angry and have a temper outburst, I'm not necessarily thinking so much about how other people see it. But then, eventually, I have to pause once the dust settles, and the dust may settle very quickly, maybe five seconds later when I think, oops, what did I just say, and what do these folks now think of me based on that? So the self is, is really dictated by our perception of what other people think about us, how they see us. And if you feel like other people um, look at you poorly, it's going to be difficult to have a um, a healthy self-concept. You can fake it, but you're not really going to have a healthy self-concept in the uh, in what you perceive to be the evidence of um, people having a very different opinion of you. So, for that me, the self-concept, what age does that start to show up? You know, I think that certainly by the time that we we reach um, uh, childhood. Um, it's going to apply. I mean, we've all seen children who are ashamed of their actions, head down after being chastised or disciplined by a parent. So it comes very, very early. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when we get to this American identity, what kinds of things would happen to us in our lives 
that helped to build that self-concept as American? Well, obviously, traumatic events, the Civil War being one of the most obvious examples in American history, are certainly going to go a long way towards that, wars and things like that. When we live in times where we're maybe not necessarily having uh, events that are catastrophic or uh, that sort of shape the national psyche, then it becomes uh, other aspects of our culture. It could be sports. It could be shared religious values. It could be shared values in terms of the, the types of entertainment that we pursue or that we enjoy. But shared experience is, is important in that. And we're open for questions, too, if anyone wants to throw anything in as we go. So just make a signal, and I'll, I'll grab you uh, to do that. Um, okay, so... Is it is there a single American identity? I mean, obviously we know North and South. Like, where where do we get these sub identities? Well, we get these sub identities because we're we're a big country, and there, there there is an American identity. I would argue. I mean, obviously there are things that differentiate America in a macro sense from other nations around the world, right? If you're if you're traveling somewhere, pick a country anywhere. Pick a country far away. Um, Turkey. All right. You're in Turkey and you happen upon another American uh, somewhere. You're in Budapest or whatever and you happen upon another American. You're going to have a certain amount of like, hey, you're from America. I'm from America. Yeah, hey. And that person could be from Montana. Right. But you're going to have some level of connection there because you're going to perceive that person as being from from home. And there's certain things that you and that person presumably are going to understand culturally that is going to be unspoken, that you're just going to connect on just by virtue of having a shared identity. Now, that's really in a macro sense, but so it's still real. Really off topic. But this is why people are Cubs fans. This is my Cubs fan theory. I just want to let you guys know. Uh-oh. That's right. Being a Cubs fan on the south side. You suffer together as Cubs fans. And if you, I was in San Francisco, Cubs hat. Every guy walks by with a Cubs hat. Don't even have to say anything. Just look. You know, you've been there. You've been suffering together for centuries. So, absolutely. Well, you know, we live in an area that is oddly enough right here outside Chicago, but it's probably it's probably the most uncharitable place in America for Cubs fans. <laughs> That's right. You could relocate almost anywhere else and and probably find greater acceptance because while the people there might not be Cubs fans. And probably aren't, in fact. If you're in San Francisco, you're probably going to run into more Giants fans than, than anybody. But yeah, even though they're not Cubs fans, they don't have quite the level of uh, animosity toward the Cubs that you find locally. <laughs> when I first moved here, I thought that was a great iceberg. I happen to be a Cubs fan. I'm uh, going to put myself out there with that. And when I first moved to this area, which I lived in Kentucky my whole life until I uh, was hired at Moraine in 2003. And when I moved here, I thought it was a great icebreaker to tell people, oh, I'm a Cubs fan. See, I'm I'm almost an honorary local already, and I got a lot of really dubious looks. I mean, the dubious looks were actually the, the, the those were the more positive reactions. <laughs> Some people, I think, were about ready to run me out of town. So I learned kind of quickly that okay, maybe that's not the first thing I should tell people. So, so let me ask, um, as a Kentuckian, it's one of the things that's discussed in Confederates in the Attic. Is um, even like the border states? There's a chapter, I think, chapter five about Kentucky. And how, and this, and this book was written in the 90s, so it's, it, there's some parts of it that are slightly dated. But Kentucky never left the, the Union, border state, right? That's right. Right? 
Um, a lot of people don't know that. In, right. And in fact, in the early part of the, the 20th century, late 1800s, there's actually some ambivalence, like evidence in the book that they didn't even think of themselves necessarily as Southerners, kind of didn't even think about the war. But is that your experience growing up in Kentucky? Well, I think we, most Kentuckians consider themselves to be Southerners. Outside of the city of Louisville, at least, I'm pretty sure. I don't think my wife ever considered herself to be a Southerner, but Louisville sort of has carved out its little place. I always say that Louisville is the northernmost southern city, and it's the southernmost northern city. It's kind of however you want to look at it. So I always think Kentucky, when you go through, most of us would agree. I mean, nobody would really accuse Indiana of being the South, right? And Tennessee, though... Yeah, so I always feel like, you know, you kind of morph into the South somewhere as you go through Kentucky. That's sort of where that happens. So I I identified as a Southerner growing up, and I I think that the culture around me made it pretty clear that we considered ourselves to be Southerners. And even if I didn't consider myself to be a Southerner when I arrived here, I never became more aware of my Southerness than when I came to Moraine Valley for the first time. And for the first time in my life, people were like, hey, you're from the South, right? Why, yes, I am, ma'am. And it's because of this way that I sound. It's, it's odd for me that for 30, almost 32 years, never really thought anything one way or the other about the words that come out of my mouth and the way that they bounce off the walls and how they sound to people. And then just, wow, it just became so evident to me. Everybody was like, where are you from? And I have people guess everything. Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. I bet you're from Georgia. And it became a major part of my, it became almost a great, I would argue in a way that being Southern is almost a bigger part of my identity living here than it was there because the people around me have sort of um, identified that in me and have have brought it more to the forefront, if that makes sense. I I can relate. So I did my um, PhD at Old Dominion in Virginia. And so... I, again, I didn't never think of myself as a northerner until you go to the south. And I was the only northerner from, you know, the state of Illinois, no less, home of um, Lincoln and Grant. And um, they reminded me of that in, in a good, you know, good-natured way. And I have good friends still from there, and, and it's not really that big of a deal. But, um, you know, I definitely um, was reminded about the war, and especially in Virginia where you live amongst the battlefields and you, you don't get away from it. No, I, you, you really don't. And, and, you know, in the book, there's the, obviously a, a great deal of time spent talking about the Civil War reenactors and, and, and this kind of thing. And I remember I worked at a, at a small county newspaper back in the 1990s, and I remember one of my assignments was to go out and photograph a reenactment of the Battle of Mumfordville. And so all these Civil War reenactors were out there. And unfortunately, I wasn't on an assignment where I was writing an article, so I really didn't have the opportunity to speak uh, with the reenactors. But just to see that kind of thing, and I, that was the kind of thing that happened periodically growing up, you know. I mean, I didn't think about it a great deal at the time, but Civil War reenactment seemed like, uh, seemed like a normal thing within that culture. And I'm not saying it's an abnormal thing, but I'm saying that it's something that in many, obviously, many places in America, that's really going to seem like a foreign activity to, to sure, people. Right, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, we have reenactors around here. It's interesting, um, in another digression, the amount of reenactors of other wars. I think it's easy for us to reenact the Civil War because the uniforms are cool and you see in a field. It's a little bit harder to reenact Vietnam, but they do. There are Vietnam, Vietnam reenactors, there's Roman reenactors. It's, it's crazy. Uh, just get back to the identity thing for a second. Are there other American identities? I mean, obviously, we're talking about the Civil War a little bit here, so we have North and South. 
but now we've spanned the continent. Are there other American identities that are prominent, would you say? Well, I think there are other American identities, but none quite so pronounced. If I say somebody's a Northeasterner, well, what does that mean exactly? What does that bring to mind for someone? I mean, we could say a Midwesterner. I'm a Midwesterner. You hear somebody, he's a God-fearing Midwesterner. Well, what, how do I, what am I supposed to do to be a good Midwesterner? I don't, I don't know. I, was, I, was, I found a quote on the Internet that I, I just jotted down real quickly that I've, I want to share with you. And it's from uh, Kathleen Purvis is the lady who said this, and she is a, she's a writer for the Charlotte Observer in North Carolina. And she said, we, meaning Southerners, are the only defeated Americans at least until Vietnam. Southerners have always had a sense that everybody puts us down, so we need to defend what is ours. And I think that that is, in many ways, the distinction. I mean, we can talk about what it's like to be from the West. Maybe there's a certain attractiveness to going out West and being free, and Jim Morrison said the West is the best, and (laughs) come out here and we'll do the rest and whatever, and we'll be free and wild and... Whatever that means or the idea that you have of grabbing a surfboard and following your your dream or whatever. But with the South, I think it's uh, people have a much more specific idea about the South. And there are so many stereotypes that the stereotypes about the South have Mm -hmm. to trump the amount of stereotypes about other regions of the United States combined. And. Is there truth in some of them? Absolutely. Are, are some of them really overblown to the point where they're, they're misleading? I think absolutely. Right. And so there's a, there's a real distinction there. And Southerners do have a chip on their shoulder. I had a student once tell me at the end of a class, she said, I just want to say you're all right. You're not how I thought you would be when the class started, when I saw that you were a man from the South. And she meant it as a compliment, and I took it as a compliment. She, there, was, there was nothing behind it that was negative at all, but I, I thought, wow, I, I never even like really occurred to me that there might be any sort of preconception there, that she's watching me just to see how I'm going to be. And then I kind of realized on a certain level for some people, I'm, I'm kind of representing the South for people that haven't met a lot of Southerners. And so I hope that in some small way, people that meet me and maybe hopefully will come to the conclusion, well, you know, he seems like he's all right. Right. That's maybe in a small way chips into like whatever stereotypical presumption they, they might've been existing with. Right. I, I I do think um, that part of the Western identity is getting away from that Northern Southern identity. The, the only other identities I can think of that are probably just as strong as are non-geographic. So identities along the lines of um, race, I think in particular, um, probably identities along the lines of um, gender. I mean, I think right. those identities are probably rival in, in the subgroups of America than just the north-south. Right. The, the, it, that's, a, that's a much more fruitful comparison to make than region because the south is something else. You can't say, well, what does it mean to be a southerner compared to what does it mean to be a midwesterner because those are, the south, it's so loaded. Right. There's a reason that we're, that we're talking about this today. There's a reason that he wrote that book. Well, and I think there's a, it's fascinating to me, right? He's writing about the Civil War that happened to the whole country, even though the battles were in the south. But he, he toured the South. Like, he didn't go to Chicago and talk to people about the Civil War. He went to Montgomery, and he went to, you know, Richmond. And 
Well, there's a curiosity, and, and, and I mean, and that's where it ha- that's where it happened. That's where the Absolutely. that's where the, the the huge majority, obviously, to say the least, of the battles took place. And I think that there's a curiosity that people have about the South. It's just they they want to go and find out what's going on down here. Why are you guys the way that you are? And they're trying to construct me- meaning from things that they see in the South, like the the. Obviously, the powerful symbolic imagery of the of the rebel flag, and uh, right. and in the book, obviously, details the story of what happened in in Kentucky, my home, and I vaguely remember this uh, from the time that it happened, where the young man uh, was killed. He had a rebel flag decal in the back of his pickup truck, right? Mm-hmm, that's right. And it it wound up turning into a violent. Situation, what people thought was a very you know provocative action on his part, and obviously feelings are, are still strong. And there's a simmering uh, issue in this whole idea of North-South Southern identity. It does it segs over very obviously into issues of race and racism, and for for readily apparent reason, it, it, it's it's the whole thing is is approached from the subtext that we have uh, the, the the memory of slavery we have the memories of the of the jim crow south it took took the south a long time and obviously it's still a work in progress to to go towards social equality in terms of race and so it's inextricable we we can't we can't take southern identity in any real thoughtful conversation about what it means to be a southerner we can't really separate that from the issue of race because of the really disgraceful history of racism that uh, that is has to be told in any accurate uh, history of that region yeah. question yeah, yeah Richard, can I ask a question? sure when did The, the question was, when did Kentucky become Southern and when did it become Confederate? Well, you know, there, I, I had a conversation with, I had a conversation, that's a better question for Josh Fulton probably. <laughs> but, yeah, things were going so well until you asked me a question I didn't know the answer to, Joe. So, um, Well, you know, even at the time, I mean, Kentucky, I suppose, you know, they'll say this, the Civil War is brother against brother. And Kentucky was, I mean, brother against brother. So even though Kentucky was a, officially a Union state, there were definitely there were definitely folks from Kentucky that took up arms with the other side. And, well, and to be fair, um, Missouri, Illinois, Iowa, Southern Ohio. I mean, there's it was definitely there were border lines that were complicated in all of those states for, for a while. I'm, I'm glancing at our new bookshelf, so this is an advertisement. And there's a book there. I don't see the exact title, but it has America prominent, and I think it's a book about voting. And you can see the blue states and red states. And if you look, the blue states, that, which means that voted Democratic in the last few elections, tend to be the North. And the red states that you know tend to go Republican uh, have been the South. And I, I think it's amazing how consistent those uh, voting patterns have been for a long time. And Again, the difference would be in that it looks like Kentucky is a red state, and Kentucky never left the Union. But um, yeah, know, Kentucky Kentucky tends to be a red state, probably safely in the uh, Romney column this this year. I doubt that. I don't know if if Obama goes to Kentucky, it will probably just be to uh, raise money. Raise money. Although I will say, Bill Bill Clinton carried Kentucky twice, if I remember correctly. Of course, Bill Clinton, the Southerner, Southern. that, that didn't—that probably didn't hurt. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and I, it'd be interesting to see, Joe, for your question, where, especially with the realignment of the parties in the 60s, late 50s and the 60s, how uh, Kentucky went back and forth. And i got to say, I don't have that information. But you could research it in the library. I hear we have a very good library. Awesome library. Yes. Uh, other questions? Other people from other areas of the country that would want to speak and say, you guys are nutty. I'm from Oregon, and there's a Northwestern identity, and just as good as the South. I don't you know. I do think those identities, I mean, I, when I go places, I, I was surprised when I was in Virginia that people could pick me out as being from Chicago. Like, you sound like a super fan. I'm like, well, I, would, I was even born in Chicago. Like, how do I have that? But I do, I guess. It's... It's amazing. When I first moved here, I, I I couldn't tell people apart if I was listening to the radio. If there were three guys on the radio, I it, my ear couldn't pick up the differences. Now I can pick them up really, really easily. But I would suppose probably for some northerners, if you went south and you you met like a handful of southern friends or whatever, at a certain in the beginning, they're probably to your ear going to sound pretty similar, right. unless one of them's really right. does a deep voice. Um, <laughs> But I think what I want to talk about a little bit is yeah. is just the the sort of like the the us versus them mentality, the in group out group. I think one of the thing that, that one of the things that puzzles and maybe even to a certain degree troubles people from outside of the South is they see such a there's such a Southern pride, and it almost seems to be sort of obstinate and just. Uh, almost like there's an in-your-face element to it, and people look at it and say, and I think some of us look back at the Civil War, and we say, well, you you, you guys were kind of wrong. You were kind of on the wrong side of history there. And yet, here we are uh, 150 years later, and you seem so, why are you still so proud of that? Why didn't right. you just kind of slink? Why didn't you just kind of accept defeat and get on graciously and yeah. uh, set about mending your ways and... Why would you want to keep – I had a, I have a friend back in Kentucky. He has a giant belt buckle, and it says, uh, American by birth, Southern by the grace of God. <laughs> and uh, has a big rebel flag, a huge belt buckle, and has a big rebel flag on it. Now, I know this guy well. He's, he's not a racist guy at all. He doesn't fit the negative stereotypes that people might tie into somebody that is that – would be wearing a gigantic rebel flag as a belt buckle. And for a lot of Southerners, as time goes on and history starts to get blurred for people, and let's face it, even those of us that have put a great deal of effort into trying to learn the lessons of history, sometimes we don't, aren't always the best historians. Cough, cough, me, who couldn't answer Joe's question. But for the average person, I mean, they're, they're not Civil War scholars. They know some things. They know that Abraham Lincoln had a beard and wore a funny hat and he freed the slaves. And it's kind of the Cliff's Notes version of history that a lot of us have. And so for a lot of modern Southern people, they don't think of it so much in terms of race, but, they, but I do think they like that identity. They've romanticized the, the, the Confederate era and the idea, you know, Hank Williams Jr. had a song that said, if the South would have won, we'd, we would have had it made. And he goes through, Hank Williams' picture would have been on the dollar bill or right. what have you. And while it's easy to listen to a song like that and, and think to yourself, well, you know, if the South would have won, people would, some of my friends would be slaves and that offends me. And I think that's a totally logical reaction. But I don't know that that's necessarily the point of view that 
Hank Williams Jr. was trying to put forth, because I think that maybe this is convenient, maybe this is rationalizing, but I think for a lot of Southerners, they have sort of separated their nostalgia for the Confederacy from some of the unpleasant realities of, of, of what it was. And for a lot of folks that I know from the South that have a real sense of pride, a real sense of Southern pride, they're, they're really into that Southern heritage. They're, they're not racist people. Right. Re- they really aren't. But yet they're embracing this symbolism that for a lot of the rest of America seems to be rather profoundly racist in a way. Well, and I don't, I don't know if it's even the rest of America. You know, they talk about in Confederates in the Attic, uh, Horowitz talks about the challenge of finding people willing to be northerners. Like when you go to the reenactments in some of these in the north, that everyone wants to be from the South. And there was an interview with Shelby Foote that I think is in the Civil War documentary by Ken Burns, where he says, you know, everyone, wa- you know, the, the, the Southern boy wants to be lined up at Pickett's Charge right before in that glory, you know, like that underdog where you know you're going to lose, but you're going to, you know, do the charge across the field at, at Gettysburg. And there's something that's attractive about, like you said, that romanticism. And I wonder how far away the romanticism gets from the reality or from the history because historians don't think about this the way that that reenactors think about it right i think that's a good point and that's the that's the danger of romanticizing something and and, and you and you get into the the idea of what about the rebel, rebel flag right. as a as a uh, northerner at least in the viewpoint of uh, some of the southern folks that you met how do you look at something like the rebel flag that if a southerner tells you well this is just this is a part of our heritage i'm proud of this flag can you separate that from right the, the and i can't like i don't get it I, I see the rebel flag and i do not understand one bit and to, and to have it on a state flag um it to me it just seems really discriminatory and painful and so I, I absolutely don't understand. I think this book helps me understand to some degree. And, and I think one thing, you know, when we talk about like um, like Northern Ireland, you talk about like an occupied um, area or something, like, you, like this history. But we don't talk about the American South as like an occupied land. But the, the, the sociology, I think, and the history of occupations also helps to me explain some of the Southern identity to go back to that in-group, out-group. Sure. Right? Like sure. Absolutely. And like the lady said, that, that we were the only defeated Americans. And if you don't think that that's going to put a chip on the shoulder, it has to. Right. It has to. the the whole The whole region was shamed yeah. in a in a very dramatic way. And so that's a that's a consequence that the South has lived with. The South is. I would obviously, all these many years later, the South has come a long way. It's sure. a very nice place. I would encourage any of you that haven't visited the South to take a vacation there at some point. People are the people are pretty friendly, and I think that you would enjoy yourself. Yeah. Question. Um, I'm a cultural geographer. I have traveled mm. the South. Part of those travels to meet people who either were from or were living in the South, so Right. And just so everyone could hear, the, the comment and question, I think, was about the, the role of religion in the South and how it seemed more prominent in initial question on meeting Southerners, which um, church you go to, assuming that you're Baptist. Yeah. Good. Right. That's a great question. I was raised Southern Baptist. 
And um, you're absolutely right that it's not just, are you a Southern Baptist, but where do you go to church? And I remember in the town that I grew up in, which was population probably about 2,000, I, and I didn't go to either of these churches. I went to another church. But there were two churches, two Southern Baptist churches, and they were they couldn't have been more than 200 yards apart. Okay, You could see very well from, from one to the other. One was the white church in town, and the other was the African-American church. And I always thought that was so strange, even as a child, you know, that here we go to worship the same God, but the white folks go to this church, the black folks go to this church. And it, was, it wasn't anything at that time, I'm going back to like the 1980s here, it wasn't anything at that time that was ever really talked about. It was just sort of like the subtext of that was, is this is just kind of how it is. It's normal, don't question it. And you never really thought about it, just took it for granted that that's the way that it was. But and now it's not always uh, what church do you go to. It's not always based around racial lines. Obviously, it's more subtle than that. But you're absolutely right. There is a there is a lot of uh, uh, a certain form of self-segregation that goes on by people you know, feeling very, very strongly about their church. And so I do think that ties into the broader discussion. Well, and I and I'd like to connect that to an idea I wanted to bring up was about northern identity because, um, you know, the, the segregation of religions in the north is almost just as prevalent or probably is just as prevalent as the south. And I think I wonder, I wanted to ask you, Ricky, what you thought about this. How does the Civil War get in the way of the northern identity? Because when, when Martin Luther King Jr. was was pushing the civil rights movement, he came to Chicago for a reason in the, in the late 60s. I mean, he, it was one of, and, and in some ways still is, one of the most segregated cities in our country. But we don't, that identity, I, and I think it does go back to the Civil War. Like, we won, we, you know, the North, and notice I say we, you know, right, ended slavery, whatever. Uh, and then we must not be racist in the North. And, I, and I, I wonder how honest we are with ourselves in those conversations. Right. I think there's some denial there. Um, Racism doesn't know geographic boundaries. Racism doesn't know to stop at Tennessee. Right. And so Martin Luther King in 1966, when he came to Chicago, and there were some folks that didn't want him to be here. And uh, King said, I've never seen mobs as hostile and hate-filled as I've seen in Chicago. And he qualified it. He said, even in Alabama or Mississippi. So he, he knew he was making a that that was a real statement. And so he, qual- he made sure to qualify. Even in Alabama and Mississippi, this is the most hostile and hate-filled mobs that I've seen. That's saying a lot. I mean, think about the resistance that King saw during the Civil Rights Movement. I mean, he saw things up close and personal that would be, that are horrifying even to see a grainy black and white photo of on the, in a book now, right? He lived it. Yeah. And so that's a pretty profound statement. And so I do think to a certain degree, it's sort of uh, the North got to... Um, abdicate responsibility for its own uh, racial issues uh, because, well, hey, we were on the right side of the war. You Southerners, what do you want? You know, we we abolished slavery. And and the fact of the matter is, is, yeah, there's still a lot of uh, racial tension here now, and it goes uh, goes far beyond black-white. I've heard so many stories post-9-11 from from my uh, uh, Arab students talking about 
prejudice that they've encountered and, and things like that. And so uh, clearly Chicago is not immune to the, the, the sorts of problems that, that sometimes are so easily associated with the South. And in some cases, the, the problems that we see here are, are just as severe. That's right. Well, and I think, you know, this is why we want to have these conversations. And I think if you even forget all of Chicagoland, if we just talk about our immediate area, the southwest suburbs, I mean, it is not uncommon in my experience of working at Moraine Valley that our campus is the first time students come together and meet people from of other races, of other religions, because you're in an environment that does bring together a wide area. And our area is still so divided up by race and class and religion and all of that. Right. Just because you have... A diverse demographic doesn't necessarily mean that that means that everybody's been living together in peaceful right. harmony or that there's or that there's a un- deep understanding. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. And so the comment was, on a global basis, geographers consider Chicago the most segregated city in the world. Probably not something we want to be proud of. We're not going to put that on brochures no. or anything. <laughs> Um, at least there's the potential, though. The thing, one of the things I was so excited when I when I got uh, hired to come here in 2003 because it's cool to be employed, but <laughs> even more so because I was excited to come to Chicago where it is so diverse, right. and it, particularly if you're teaching sociology, if you're teaching algebra or something like that, I don't suppose it matters so much what the uh, racial and ethnic uh, religious backgrounds are of your students who teach in algebra, and as long as you can get that across, you get that across. But for sociology, so much of the currency of what happens in my classroom is the quality of the discussion and the quality of the dialogue. And I'm always trying to encourage my students to participate, in fact, sometimes coerce them to participate in, in the discussion and to think about these things critically and talk about these things. And there's a richness that comes to those conversations based on people coming from different backgrounds where things come up and you've got somebody in the room that can relate to this concept in a way that is uh, at least somewhat personal, in some cases deeply personal. And I think that you miss that in a real homogeneous environment. So while it's unfortunate that we're segregated, we have such a great opportunity. Well, And I think the discussion for us to have today, and and I think... We have come a long way since 1966, and that there's a greater appreciation for other cultures, and especially in the city, I think there's an uh, embracing of those cultures. But the, the more complicated conversation is how far do we go with it, and when cultural lines align with um, economic and class lines, um, how willing are we then to give up and to try to bridge differences and make improvements, and when the poor schools are in certain neighborhoods and the better schools are in other neighborhoods, those are the harder conversations to have. So, yes, I'll go down to your, you know, festival and enjoy your food, and then do I go back to my neighborhood and hide away? And so we've, we've gotten to some degree of acceptance, but now what's the next step? And I think that those aren't easy questions to answer. No, not at all. What do you, what do, you do? And I think that's a question that a lot of people have. People that are well-meaning, what, how, how do I get involved? How do I change this? Right. That's a loaded question to tell somebody, why don't you do your part to help uh, <laughs> right. stop segregation? Well, what, what do I do? And so it, it is, it's a difficult, you know, something like that that really becomes an ingrained pattern of social behavior is uh, almost takes on a momentum of its own, and it's difficult to stop. Comment.
right? The violence on the streets, yeah. And it is depressing. Yeah. yeah, it's very depressing, and it's um, it's something that's if you don't live in that area, it's something that it's easy to uh, just say, oh well, that's a shame. But I'm going to go back to my safe neighborhood and just focus on my life. Um, and so we have the luxury, those of us that don't live in that environment where the danger is is near. We have, not that not that this makes us irresponsible as individuals necessarily, but we just have a certain luxury of moving on about our lives and paying it not a lot of mind, except for when we read about it in the newspaper or when we see it on television. But yeah, there are, there are, there's a tremendous problem in the, in the city in in certain areas that. We really need we really need to work as a community to try and, and set about resolving. Good question. Good question. So the the question is is there mul- uh, is, are there multiple southern identities and especially does that differ by race? Good. Uh, meaning, I assume you mean in the at least partially in the context of does it mean something different to grow up in the South as a as a black male as opposed to growing up in the South as a, a white male, etc. Well, I would have to think so. Uh, I would have to think so. I, I can't speak to the to the black experience in the South. I mean, I've taken classes on race, obviously, in in, in grad school. I uh, uh, had professors. I had a professor from Africa, and I took a, a class on race, and I've talked about these things. And I tell my students, you know, I try to understand, and. I, I don't want. I, I can't insult anybody else by saying, "Well, I'm, I can. I know what it's like to walk in your shoes." But I would have to think that the experience would be greatly different, particularly if you grew up in an area where um, uh, racial tensions ran higher. Uh, one of the things that we talk about in sociology, being one of the, there's a lady named Peggy McIntosh, and she wrote an article some years ago called "White Privilege." Uh, I think it's called Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. And the idea is is that as a white person in a predominantly white society or a Christian person in a predominantly Christian society and so on and so forth, you there are certain privileges that you have socially that you may not ever really stop and reflect on, but they're little advantages. Like probably in my life, I've never been denied a job opportunity just because somebody took one look at me and said, okay, well white guy we're not you know they don't tell you that right but i know of cases i've had students tell me i had a guy once who worked in a grocery store and he told me that a an african-american lady came in and she applied for a job and uh his two supervisors were having a conversation near him while he was busy doing something else and after the lady left one supervisor turns to the other and says well i'm not going to hire any black women because you know they've all got big mouths and how sad when this lady is attempted to do something positive in her life and before she's even 10 feet out the door her her application is not in the drawer with the other applications it's in the garbage can and so that kind of thing does happen sometimes right probably though it's not going to happen to a to a white male or even a, even a white woman at least in that in in that scenario that I just drew up which is a real experience so Another advantage of being white, if you want to look at it as an advantage, many white people go through their lives without really ever finding themselves in a social situation where they are the numerical minority in the room. If you are a black person living in America to, to be employed, to go to school, 
to go out and live life, you are going to find yourself in situations in life frequently where you are just, from a numerical point of view, you are one of two or three people in a room of 50 or 100 or whatever that are composed of other races, probably predominantly uh, white people. I remember years ago, I went to a I went to a concert in Tennessee. I don't know if I don't know if anybody here knows who the Reverend Al Green is, but I went to see the Reverend Al Green back probably 15 years ago. Yeah, he was great too. And uh, I went to this concert and I didn't think anything about it. I just liked Al Green. I still do. And I never really thought about anything any further than if you go, if you get tickets to go see anybody, you're excited to go see them, whether, regardless of who the artist is, right? And so I go to this concert with my mom. Joe, do you approve of that? Good son. Okay, I took my mom. And I'm sitting in there and I start just looking around as I'm getting seated and I start to realize there really aren't any white folks here. And it wasn't uncomfortable or anything like that. I just found it interesting as I looked around the room and I thought, wow, I'm looking in this auditorium, gymnasium. There's probably eight or 10,000 people there. And literally, I, I did a little head count because I had time to kill waiting for the show to start. And I looked around the room and I, I came up with like six or eight white people, including me. And I thought, you know, this maybe is a small insight into what life is like on virtually an everyday basis for some minorities. And, and, you know, I remember coming back and I told that story to a, to, uh, um, uh, a friend of mine and, uh, and the, the person said, well, what happened? And I said, Al came out and he preached a little and he sang a little and a good time was had by all and we went home, you know. But, it was, but for that friend, who was very well-meaning, it was just kind of like, well, what happened? <laughs> they couldn't conceive uh, of it. And so... You know, for a, for an African American growing up in the South, even today, I got to think that um, that experience is, is has to be different, at least on some on some level. Especially if you venture out of your neighborhood, and that you know, from the, yeah, and that's true as well. I, I um, would like to bring us back to the book. And one final question: We're almost out of time. The the subtitle of this book. Uh, it's Confederates in the Attic, Dispatches from the Unfinished Civil War. And I think he purposely used the word unfinished. And um, I was wondering, I'd love to get your perspective on that. In what ways is it unfinished, and will we ever have a finished civil war in this country? Well, clo- question. closure is um, closure's important. I, I almost wonder if... Uh, I almost wonder if he would have given the book the same title if he wrote it today. I I know when he was here on campus, um, what last week? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, he he acknowledged that things were at least somewhat different now than at the time that that uh, he wrote the book. I know, in I graduated high school, 1989. And at that time, the school that I went to, I, I had a, went to a small little school, but I would say probably about 25% of my class was African-American and the rest was Caucasian. And we uh, got along well. There was no racial tension really in my school. I mean, I do know in the uh, community that I grew up in, there was most of the black folks lived in the black neighborhood and the white folks lived in white neighborhoods. But everybody got along well. But I remember 
not long after I graduated, which is getting up to about the same time frame when uh, he wrote this book, that uh, there start, things started to change. There was no interracial dating when I was in high school. Nobody, I mean, I, I don't know that that was ever discussed. It was almost just like nobody didn't occur to anybody. But by about 1992, some of my friends were starting to date interracially. And also, around that same time, there started to be some racial tension that I had never seen. And so I think, in a way, the unfinished, some of the unfinished aspect of this, I mean, this doesn't apply to the entire book, but to certain aspects of the tension that you see in this book, I think there are necessary growing pains as the South advances out of some of the segregation, as you start to see more things like interracial dating, that there's a backlash that some of these latent hostilities come out, but they only come out when a situation arises that stokes them up. Mm-hmm. We all got along well, but interracial dating wasn't right. possible. So that's not that's not really a satisfactory culture. You should right. be able to date who you like, but then once you're able to date who you like, and that starts to become accepted, and that starts to get mainstream, well, now some people will get worked up about that. And so I think that we're probably still in this process because it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in one decade. But I think that as time goes forward and as these barriers are broken down, you will see more of a generational change. And, and eventually, I mean, I don't know how you finish the the Civil War, uh, at least in terms of what it how it looms over American history, and it probably always will to at least some extent. But I think that some of the tensions that you that you saw in the book were really the product of progress and sort of the uh, ancillary uh, uh, problems that sometimes go along with with progress. Okay, great. Well, I want to thank everybody for coming and to thank Ricky for his um, ideas and his time. And we don't, I didn't bring my schedule. There's more events for the one book on the way, so uh, you can take a look on the poster outside. Thank you all, and have a good afternoon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.